Well, you've heard the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished. Unpunished, right. So uh, a man pulls up at a traffic light, and uh, on the median next to him, he sees some empty beer bottles uh, there on the grass there. So he decides he's going to do a good deed. He's going to pick them up, put them in his car, and he'll take and put them back in the recycling in his own house. Half a mile later, a cop pulls him over, gives him a ticket for having open containers in his car. Well... A woman walks down the street, she sees a, a puppy who appears to be injured, uh, and she bends down to see if she can help, and the dog bites her. Uh, a, a teacher uh, gives extra help to a student who, who uh, really is struggling in class, and then uh, uh, the, the, the parent of another kid calls in and says, you know, uh, this, this teacher is really showing favoritism to this kid. What about my kid, right? So no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, it happens all the time. Uh, in Mark chapter 1, uh, Jesus cast out demons from two people. Uh, he performed various uh, other exorcisms and healings, and he cured a leper. Uh, and now in Mark 2, that we'll begin to look at this week, uh, Jesus healed a paralytic. He called Levi. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. And what did he get for his good deeds? Well, he got followers, yes, but he also got antagonism, and he got persecution. So from Mark chapter 2, where we're going to be starting today, uh, through Mark chapter 3, verse 6, uh, this is kind of a unit. They, they all go together. These are five separate controversies uh, that Jesus caused uh, by his teaching and his healing. And so this is what we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks. Uh, this week we'll be talking about how Jesus forgives uh, and heals a paralytic, and we're going to talk about how Jesus associates with sinners, uh, eating with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, and then next week, uh, we'll begin to look at the rest of these, where uh, Jesus didn't fast when the Pharisees thought that he should, uh, and we get the parable of the old wineskins in that little uh, passage. Uh, then his disciples uh, picked grain on the Sabbath, and then Jesus healed the man with the withered hand in the synagogue in Capernaum uh, on the Sabbath. So five separate controversies caused by Jesus and his teaching, and that's what we're going to be looking at. So uh, again, this, this phrase, no good deed goes, on, goes unpunished, this is... This is a sarcastic way that, that you, know, you and I kind of uh, may look at things when, when we try and do good deeds and it turns out that you know, the good we try to do uh, turns out for bad, it turns, it turns out bad on us. And you know, sometimes that is true in life, uh, but it's not necessarily a rule of life. And when I talk about this in terms of Jesus, I don't want to make Jesus sound like a victim here, right? Jesus was certainly not a victim. Uh, Jesus knew what he was doing. He was intentionally pushing the envelope. He was intentionally challenging the people, uh, especially the scribes and Pharisees, uh, challenging their way of thinking because he did above and beyond what they would have expected uh, of their Messiah. And so Jesus knew what was going to happen, and, and he, he did this on purpose. So today, as I said, we're going to look at these first two controversies. Uh, he healed the paralytic, and he forgave the paralytic's sins. Uh, and so that's the first one. And then he called the much-hated Levi, uh, who we also know as Matthew, uh, and he called him as a disciple, and then he, he ate with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house. Now, as we get deeper into Mark, and as we, as we start working our way through these five controversies, what I want us to see is that the gospel is good news, and you know, we certainly know that, but the gospel is also confrontational. If we're going to preach the word, if we're going to speak the word, it will confront people. Uh, and so each week as we progress through Mark, uh, Jesus is going to become increasingly more provocative 
uh, as he does and says uh, things that, that will confront the people uh, with his authority as God's Messiah and challenging their thinking as to what their Messiah was going to be. And so, predictably, when he does this, opposition uh, from the religious authorities is going to continue to mount against him, and that's what we're going to see over these next few weeks. Now, over the last, uh, or last week, we were reminded that, that being a disciple involves uh, sacrifice, it involves service, and it involves suffering. That, that's what a true disciple of Jesus is going to experience. And last week, when we were looking at it, we saw uh, that it came from demonic opposition, right? As, as Jesus dealt with demons, he dealt with diseases, he dealt with illness. That's Mark chapter 1. Now here in Mark chapter 2, we're going to see a different kind of opposition. Uh, this time it comes from people. It comes from the scribes. It comes from the Pharisees. Uh, and the intensity of the hostility toward Jesus increases as he's dealing with people. Uh, and so we see that sometimes human opposition can even be more difficult to deal with than demonic opposition uh, sometimes. And, and sometimes they're one and the same. Uh, so uh, sometimes we have, to, we have to deal with both. Uh, but the more uh, good that Jesus did, uh, the greater the opposition became. So no good deed goes unpunished. What does that mean for, for you and me? Uh, we are charged to spread the gospel. We are charged to do good works in Christ's name. Uh, as we do those good works, we may receive opposition. So are we prepared uh, to confront others with the truth of the gospel and all that means so that they may be saved? Uh, we may think so, but a second question is, are we prepared for the antagonism uh, that will come our way uh, when we uh, do what Christ's disciples do, which is to teach the word and to teach people uh, how to be more Christ-like? So those are the questions we'll be thinking about as we, as we move forward today. Uh, so the first thing we're going to look at is this first passage where Jesus heals and forgives a paralytic. We're going to read it all the way through chapter uh, 2, verse 1 through 12. Uh, when... Jesus came back to Capernaum a few days later. It was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so there was no longer space, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And some people came, bringing to him a man who was paralyzed, carried by four men. And then when they were unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. After digging an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralyzed man was lying. And Jesus... Seeing their faith, said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and thinking it over in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who has the power to sin except God alone? The power to forgive sin except God alone. Uh, <laughs> that, that didn't come out right. Uh, <laughs> Who can forgive sins except God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were thinking that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you thinking about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I say to you, Get up. Pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up his pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. 
So let's talk first about the faith of the friends. Uh, this is verses 1 through 4. Uh, Jesus, uh, remember last week, he, he left Capernaum to do a little tour of Galilee. He said, I must go out and preach to the others also, for this is why I came. So he does a little tour around Galilee. Now he comes back to Capernaum, and he enters a house. And while he's in this house, he starts teaching, and of course, a large crowd gathers around. In fact, so large that it filled the house. It spilled all the way out the door, uh, out into the neighborhood. Uh, they couldn't get to Jesus. It was standing room only. So, so these four friends, uh, they have this paralytic. Uh, they can't get to uh, Jesus because of the crowds. Now, Mark doesn't identify who these guys are, but he does, uh, through their conduct, identify qualities uh, of uh, what a true disciple looks like. And the first quality that these guys display is a deep concern for their friend, right? A deep concern for their friend. Uh, this man is paralyzed. He has no hope of ever walking again. And so what is it that they're showing? This is compassion. This is empathy. This is the idea that we see somebody suffering, we feel something, compassion for them, empathy for them, and we want to do something about it. And that's what these men do. Those are Christian qualities, the idea that we see suffering and we also want to relieve it when we see people who are less fortunate, that we are willing to do something to help. So that's the first quality. They showed concern for their friends. Uh, for the friend. Uh, the next quality that they show was faith to believe that Jesus could actually heal this friend. So Mark doesn't ever say whether there was a relationship between uh, Jesus and these friends, whether they ever knew each other before, uh, or if they'd only heard of Jesus before this encounter. Uh, so we don't know that, but, but apparently, you know, the news of the healings that had gone on in Capernaum uh, that had spread like wildfire. People knew uh, what was going on and, and what Jesus was doing. And so these four guys, they believed that Jesus could heal their friend. And it is amazing what can happen when we have faith, right? Jesus said, uh, if you believe, you can tell this mountain to get up and move from here to there, and it will obey you. I mean, that is the power of faith. Uh, and so the men carrying uh, their friends showed true faith by trying to get their friend to Jesus for healing. And another quality they showed, a third quality, the first is deep concern, second, faith to believe, and this last one here is that they put their faith into action. Uh, a faith uh, is, a, is, is an action in many ways. So uh, to have faith in your mind is one thing, but to put, to put legs to it is something else. Uh, true faith shows itself in what we do. And so Mark is a book filled with action. And here we see action. These friends uh, pick this man up and they carry him uh, and, and, and they're trying to get to Jesus. And uh, faith doesn't mean that our lives will be easy, right? We see that just from this, this episode alone. Uh, they have faith, they want to put legs to their faith, but they can't get to Jesus. So all, immediately uh, their faith is difficult. They had no access to him, so they had to show ingenuity, creativity. If they couldn't get to him by land, uh, they would get to him by air. That was the plan. So uh, a typical first century house in Israel would look something like this. It had an exterior stairway, like you see there, that led to a roof that was made of uh, branches and tiles and sod and uh, just whatever they could get, and they would pack it down uh, to try and keep uh, the rain from coming in. So imagine these four guys, they're, they're carrying their friend up these very treacherous uh, vertical without a railing OSHA-approved staircase here, uh, and uh, you know, the guy's already paralyzed, I guess what's the worst that can happen to him? But, uh, <laughs> 
it was a difficult, difficult thing that they were trying to do here. So they carry him up to the top of this roof. They lay him down, uh, and then when they, when they get to the top, they start digging through the roof. Now, it would not have been too hard to dig through this roof. It's just branches and tiles and you know, clay, sod, whatever they could find. But it surely would have made quite a mess below, right? This dirt and everything was going to fall in on Jesus and everybody who was in the house. And I bet whoever owned the house wasn't too happy, right? Because now he's got this big hole in his roof that I'm sure his homeowner's insurance didn't cover. Uh, so he's got a big problem here. He's not very happy. Uh, but the four men didn't care. They wanted their friend to be healed. So these four guys must have brought straps or something with them. So they prepared in advance. What were they going to do once they got up to the top of this roof? So they dig this hole, and somehow they're able to lower the man down to Jesus. Now, what a spectacle this might have been, right? Remember, there were tons of people there. The house is packed. They're packed out the door. Uh, there are many, many people there, including the scribes, and they're all wondering, what would Jesus do? So the next thing we see is Jesus' diagnosis in verse 5. Jesus begins this with a non sequitur. A non sequitur is, is a statement that does not logically follow from the thing that went before, right? So a statement says this, and then the, the, the next statement doesn't have any relation to what, what went before it. So uh, this is what happens. Jesus saw their faith, and he knew that the friends and the paralytic wanted healing. So what does Jesus say? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, I mean, that's a non sequitur, right? It's a, they, they came for healing, they got forgiveness of sin. So why would Jesus say that? Why would he approach the situation that way? I think there are two reasons. The first is that this man's primary problem, as well as your primary problem and my prim primary problem, is sin, right? That is our primary problem. Uh, so Jesus recognized that, yes, he's got a physical issue, but his real problem is spiritual, uh, just like ours. So Jesus could heal this man's paralysis, and he could make his earthly life a whole lot easier by allowing this man to walk around and do whatever it is that he would have done. But this would not have cured the man's spiritual problem, and it would not have cured spiritual death, which is where everybody with this spiritual problem is headed because we are all sinners by nature and by practice, uh, we are headed for eternity apart from Jesus Christ in hell. That's what awaits us all. And the only solution to the problem of spiritual death is forgiveness of sins, and only God can forgive sins. So Jesus calls this man son, uh, and in doing so, he showed his love and his acceptance of this man and his authority over the sin and the paralysis that plagued his life. And so Jesus recognizes the big problem is spiritual rather than physical. But why else would he say something like that? Well, because the scribes were there, right? The scribes were the, they were the lawyers who, who, who transcripted the scriptures. They interpreted them. They wrote commentaries on them. Uh, these were the, 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 the learned, the, the people who knew the law. And they were there witnessing. So Jesus says to the, the man, son, your sins are forgiven. And that is to claim before these scribes who were there watching him that he was indeed the Messiah, God's anointed. Jesus was claiming to be God, and he was correcting their thoughts about what they thought the Messiah was going to look like. The Messiah was not going to be this military Messiah that they had hoped for who would come in and overthrow Rome and restore the kingdom back to what it was under David and Solomon. Uh, Jesus was a spiritual warrior who could defeat Satan and sin and death. That was his mission. 
And Jesus was truly concerned for this paralytic lying on this mat, uh, unable uh, to walk. He was concerned for both his physical and his spiritual condition. But I also want you to see that, that this paralytic in some ways uh, was just a, 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 a participant in this larger drama that, that is going on between Jesus and the scribes as, as this discussion about sin is about to continue. So how do the scribes react? There was nothing subtle about Jesus' statement, right? There was nothing subtle at all about it because obviously he knew when he said uh, your sins are forgiven and only God can forgive sins, uh, that that would provoke a response from the scribes. But it's interesting that the scribes don't say anything. They just think in their minds, this man is blaspheming. Who has the power to forgive but God alone? So... To be fair to the scribes, so I mean, let's just give them a little bit of slack here. There is no Old Testament prophet who claimed that he was able to forgive sins. There's no Old Testament prophecy that says that the Messiah would forgive sins uh, necessarily. So uh, that power was reserved for God alone. And so they didn't expect their Messiah to be somebody who forgives sins. They expected him to be a military Messiah, as I said. So it's not unreasonable uh, from that perspective to, for them to have thought that Jesus was blaspheming. But I think what we can blame the scribes for is their rigid reading and interpretation of Scripture uh, so that they didn't have any room uh, in their thinking uh, to allow the Messiah to be what God wanted him to be rather than what they thought he should be. Uh, their, their, their theology did not allow the Messiah to exceed their own expectations or the prophecy that they had read in the Old Testament. So they didn't have a category uh, in their minds for this Messiah who has the ability to forgive sins. They had never thought of him that way. And so they had hard hearts. They were unwilling to put their faith in Jesus because he wasn't what they wanted or what they expected. So that's where they went wrong. Now Jesus, for his part, he's really walking a tightrope here when you think about it because he's saying, son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, by saying that, you're claiming to be God, uh, and the penalty for claiming to be God, uh, the, the charge is blasphemy, the penalty is execution by stoning for such a thing. Uh, so he, he's walking this tightrope with them, and, and while the scribes are considering uh, these things uh, that Jesus said, now Jesus moves on and he proves his deity and the authority to forgive sins by the two things uh, he did next. So uh, the first thing is that Jesus knew their thoughts. That's verses 8 and 9. Now, <clears throat> it's, it's certainly possible that Jesus could have known their thoughts just by reading the room, right? If you say, uh, son, your sins are forgiven, uh, you probably know that that's going to cause some kind of visceral reaction from the crowd that, that he'd be able to see on their faces. You probably don't be, uh, need to be omniscient to, to see that that's going to cause uh, some kind of reaction. But the detail of their thoughts that he knew uh, shows that that... that uh, when Jesus became aware in his spirit of their exact thoughts, uh, well, that's when uh, it's, it's going beyond merely reading the room. Jesus knew uh, their thoughts, and he called them out for that, and only God can do that. So that's the first thing that he did. And the second thing he did was he healed the paralytic's physical condition. This is verses 10 through 12. Uh, but before we get to the actual healing, I just want to point out that Jesus here uh, uses this phrase. He says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. 
Now, this is a little more subtle to our way of thinking because we don't necessarily have the grasp of the Old Testament that these uh, Pharisees would have in the first century. Uh, but when he calls himself that, he is taking that title from one of the most messianic passages in the Old Testament, which is Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, uh, which says this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So we talked about this verse when we were in our study of Daniel a few months ago, and uh, we, were, we said that Son of Man is Jesus, and the Ancient of Days is God, and Jesus is going to take a kingdom uh, from God. And so uh, when, when Jesus you know, calls himself Son of Man to the scribes here for the first time, He's making a direct reference back to this messianic passage, and the scribes, for their part, surely didn't miss it. Uh, they knew what he was saying. Uh, so Son of Man was uh, one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. So what's he going to do now? How is he going to back up this claim in front of this huge crowd that has assembled uh, there who are watching? How, what's he going to do? Well, what he's going to do is he's going to heal this man. He says to the man, which is easier, or to, to the crowd, which is easier to say, uh, which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. Well, here's the logic. Anyone can say your sins are forgiven, right? Like I could say that to you, your sins are forgiven. Does that have any worth? No, but I could say it. It's very easy to say it. The claim cannot be verified since nobody can actually see the forgiveness of sins, right? That happens in the spiritual realm beyond what we can see. It's much harder to say, get up, pick up your mat and walk, because the man would either get up, pick up his mat and walk, or he wouldn't, right? That's very easy to verify. So Jesus showed that he had the power to do something they could see to prove that he had the power to do something they couldn't see. He showed that he had the power to heal this man's physical condition to prove that he had the power to heal his man's spiritual condition as well. And so the man immediately picks up his pallet and he walks out. And everyone saw it. This huge crowd that was gathered saw it. And so the scribes had to be just as amazed as everybody else, right? All the people were amazed, it says. But there are two different reactions, right? The people were amazed and they glorified God. Uh, but the scribes, they grumbled, right? They grumbled. They didn't like it at all uh, because this man, was, this man Jesus was something beyond what they were expecting. Now, if you were there watching, if you were a witness in these, this crowded little house or out in the alleyway and you saw this man pick up his pallet and walk, uh, what would you have thought? Would your heart have been hardened like the scribes or would you be glorifying God like the people? Well, it depends on what you thought the Messiah would be and whether he was satisfying your expectations or not. Uh, and the problem with that, of course, is that we have to be open to what God's view of the Messiah is and not ours. I hope for my part that I'd be chasing down Jesus saying, Lord, I'm a sinner, please forgive my sins. Uh, that's what I hope I'd be doing because of all the things that Jesus can do for us, the forgiveness of sins is the greatest, right? Jesus can, he can heal your cancer uh, and he can uh, get college paid for, right? He can cover that. He can work out conflicts. Uh, he can do uh, so many other, other different things, healing broken relationships. But forgiving sins is, is other level, right? That's, nobody can do that. Only God can do that. 
And that is the only thing that secures our place in heaven. So the, the greatest thing Jesus can do for anyone is to forgive our sins. Now, one of the dangers of theology, and if you're uh, a scribe and Pharisee and you have your own uh, kind of theology, uh, and even in our day, in, in our theology, uh, we may read and we may study the scriptures uh, and we may think that we have God figured out, right? We know what God is, uh, and, and, and when we do that, that puts God in a box. Uh, the, the, I think what the scribes did was they put God in a box and they said, this is what God will do, this is what God won't do. This is what God will say, this is what God won't say. Uh, our Messiah will be a military Messiah. This is not the Messiah we want or expect. This cannot be the Messiah. Uh, and so they were putting God in a box. And we do this too, don't we? Uh, we have the tendency to say uh, that God will do this and he won't do that. And I think that that's to our own detriment, that we put God in a box uh, and we don't allow God to be God. He is mysterious. He is unpredictable. He is all-powerful. And so we can never put God in a box and say uh, or limit what God will or won't do. Uh, Jesus didn't meet these neat theological categories that the scribes had for what their Messiah was going to be. So they rejected him and they rejected the results. The people glorified the scri uh, the Jesus and the scribes rejected him. Now, of course, we need good theology, right? I would be the last guy ever to say we don't need theology. Of course, we need good theology. But I'm just warning us, again, not to put God in a box. He's not limited by our small minds. He can do what is impossible, and he does what's unexpected all the time. And so the scribes could have learned from this episode that sin is like a sickness and Jesus can heal it. They could have learned that. They could have learned that Jesus is the Savior that they need because of their own personal sin. But they didn't learn that either. Their hardness of heart prevented them from being able uh, to comprehend any of this. Now, this is the first time that Jesus drew the ire of the scribes uh, for what he did. But Jesus' uh, confrontations with them and the Pharisees was only just beginning. And so next, Jesus offended them by calling a tax collector uh, named Levi as his disciple, and then eating with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, the horror of it uh, was so offensive to them. So uh, let's read this, and let's get ready to get convicted ourselves, okay? Uh, this is going to be verses 13 to 17. Uh, and he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Well, Jesus called Levi. This is verses 13 and 14. Uh, Jesus left Capernaum again, and he went out along the seashore, and, and people continued to follow him, to listen to his teaching. Now, there was an ancient route along uh, this uh, area in Palestine uh, that ran all the way from, from Egypt uh, in the south, all the way up to Mesopotamia in the north, and it's called the Way of the Sea. 
Uh, and so the Way of the Sea was a, was a very popular route. And along this route, there were various toll booths along the way. If you entered a particular place, uh, you had to stop and pay taxes. And so uh, this is where uh, Jesus encounters Levi uh, or Matthew. Uh, he is the toll collector at one of these places along the Way of the Sea. So Matthew was a Jewish tax official. He works for the hated uh, King Herod Antipas and for Rome. So, because he works for the enemy, and because tax collectors were notorious for being corrupt, for taking way more than they needed to take, uh, or than what was required by Rome, uh, the Jews would have considered him a traitor. And so, Jesus, in a, in a, in a stunning, astounding act of grace, uh, calls this man, a Levi, who was hated by his own people. Now, Nowhere in the New Testament or before this episode does it say that Matthew Levi had, had any relationship with Jesus before. Uh, most commentators assume that, that Matthew must have had some kind of relationship with him because he immediately gets up and walks uh, and follows him. Uh, but there's nothing in the New Testament that says that, so uh, it's just an assumption based on how quickly uh, Matthew immediately followed him. So what Jesus shows here again is that no one is beyond his reach. Even this hated Jewish uh, tax collector who obviously is not following the law, it has no uh, particular affinity or compassion or identification with his people. Uh, he's living like a Gentile, employed by the Gentiles, having contact with the Gentiles. Uh, he's a Jew in name, but he's not a Jew at heart. Uh, even this man, uh, Jesus, can reach. Uh, so no one is beyond Jesus' reach. I imagine some very uncomfortable meetings in those early days between Matthew and the other disciples, right? Because uh, these early days, uh, you know, Jesus brings Matthew in. Uh, Matthew, as I just said, uh, you know, rubs shoulders with Gentiles. He, he's corrupt. He collects more money than he has to. Uh, and he may have extorted even from these very disciples who he's now uh, a member of. He may have extorted money from them in the past. And so uh, Matthew would have been an outcast among those uh, disciples that he would have called. And Jesus would have to smooth over a lot of hard feelings between Matthew and the others uh, that he called to follow him. And when Jesus called, Matthew immediately left a lucrative business, a lucrative career that he had, and he followed Jesus. <clears throat> so imagine yourself as uh, Andrew or Peter, or John, or James, uh, how would you have received Matthew? How would you have treated him if you were one of the disciples? Could, could you have forgiven him for the things that he did? Uh, which makes us ask the next question, how are we doing with that today? Uh, how are we treating people uh, who Jesus has forgiven if they offend us in some way? Uh, are we quick to forgive uh, like Jesus was, or do we hold grudges uh, that, that need to be smoothed over? Uh, There's something we need to think about in all of our relationships. Uh, so uh, Jesus calls Levi, and then Levi hosts a banquet, verse 15. That night, uh, Matthew, Levi, hosts Jesus and his disciples and a whole bunch of other tax collectors and sinners. Uh, what a mishmash of riffraff this must have been, all assembled together, gathered in one room. But they had one thing in common, didn't they? 
They were all following Jesus, and so that is a good thing. Uh, Matthew must have owned a very large house to host so many people, and again, no good deed goes unpunished. So Matthew opens his house. Lots of people are coming in. Matthew is feeding people. Jesus eats with them, but the scribes of the Pharisees criticized. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? It's interesting uh, early here in the gospel, we see that there are, are two different groups in the, in the Pharisees' eyes. Uh, although everyone is a sinner, <clears throat> the way we use the term sinner, the way the Pharisees use the term sinner is anyone who is not trained in the law, who is not strictly uh, following uh, Pharisaical practices, is a sinner. So you're either a Pharisee or you're a sinner. That, that's the only two categories there are. And if you're a sinner, you can be even a worse sinner because you can be a tax collector too. So you got Pharisees, you got sinners, and you got sinners and tax collectors. Uh, real problem with those people. So this is how the Pharisees thought. And so the Pharisees next accused Jesus of associating with sinners. This is 16 and 17. They, they were offended because Jesus refused to separate himself from the people that the Pharisees deemed to be tax collectors and sinners. Now, the very word Pharisee comes from an Aramaic word that means to separate, to separate. So that's what the Pharisees did. They separated themselves from the rest of the mishmash and the riffraff. That's what they did. Uh, and so Jesus himself did not come to separate himself from this crowd of people. He came to live among sinners. He came to eat with them and, and to tell them the good news of the gospel. And the problem with the Pharisees is that they didn't think they were sinners. They didn't think they needed a savior. In their pride, they thought that they could earn God's favor by their meticulous keeping of the law. And isn't this something we see even today? People think that they can earn God's salvation by the things they do. So many religions, and, and in fact, so many denominations, even of Christianity, uh, teach salvation by works. Now, we can never be saved by the works that we do. If we could, then Jesus' death on the cross was unnecessary. If we could earn salvation, then God sadistically punished his son on the cross for no reason. The fact is, Jesus' blood is necessary. That We cannot be saved uh, other than by faith in Jesus' blood and that he died for our sins so that we could have forgiveness of sins and so that we could spend eternity in heaven if we will receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So we're not saved by what we do. We're saved by faith in what he has done. And so uh, that's what he's pointing out. Uh, we're saved by what he's done. So Jesus pointed out the Pharisees' ignorance in his response. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus overhears this and he says, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Jesus was not calling the Pharisees sinless or righteous. He was accusing them of self-righteousness and ignorance, not knowing that they were sick, not knowing that they needed a physician. So they blindly point out the flaws of everyone else, like the log uh, it was in their eye that they couldn't see. They're trying to pick out the speck in somebody else's eyes. Uh, they were missing their own dire need for a savior. Uh, Jesus' love for sinners in those days was revolutionary because this is not how the Pharisees loved sinners. 
they loved sinners by heaping burdens on them and telling them how bad they were. Uh, Jesus loved sinners by living with them uh, and accepting them and then uh, working on their hearts. Uh, so Jesus' love was anti-pharisaical, you could say. It was the opposite of how they did it. Jesus would love the outcasts and the sinners, not separate from them. So do we love the outcasts? Uh, we went to see uh, the Jesus Revolution the other night. I don't know how many of you have seen that yet. Uh, but this, you know, pastor, uh, Chuck Smith, a Southern California pastor, you know, an older man, a little stodgy, a little stuffy. Uh, his daughter encourages him to meet a hippie uh, who loves Jesus. And, and uh, so this hippie walks in the door uh, through uh, circumstances that God has arranged. And, and all of a sudden, this older man, this older pastor, uh, is uh, completely uh, changed by the words that this man says. And, and he opens up his church to this hippie movement. Uh, these are the social outcasts. And, and all of a sudden, this, this church that Chuck Smith began becomes uh, a Calvary Chapel, which has, I don't know, a thousand other churches. And, and his church spawned uh, Greg Laurie, which I don't know how many Harvest Chapels there are, but, but thousands and thousands and thousands of people, all because Chuck Smith uh, lived with an outcast and loved an outcast, and the gospel spread and grew. So do we love the outcasts? Uh, let's close with a couple of applications uh, to wrap this up. Uh, the first thing I want us to, to, to think about is that we need to have uh, the faith of the paralytic's friends. Jesus is the answer to all of our problems. We must go to him. Uh, sometimes we find that Jesus gives us even more than we can possibly ask or imagine. The friends brought this paralytic for physical healing, and they got that, but they got so much more than that. They got spiritual healing and the salvation of souls. I just love the effort that these guys made to, to get this man uh, to Jesus, and I love how Jesus rewarded them for their faith in ways beyond what they could imagine. So where do you need Jesus' help? Where are you crying out to the Lord? Uh, Lord, I need help with this. I'm, I'm having a problem here. Uh, don't be afraid to go to him. Don't think your problem is too small. Don't think that he doesn't care. Uh, Jesus does care. He is a rewarder of faith, and he will reward your faith. Uh, maybe not exactly as you think he will, but he will reward your faith. So have the faith of the paralytic's friends. Go to him. Get to him. Whatever it takes, get yourself to Jesus and ask. And the next thing is this. Don't be a judgmental Christian. Now, I could probably use this application every single week uh, that I preach, uh, but especially in the book of Mark, as we continue to confront, uh, and Jesus continues to confront the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were so haughty. They were so sure of their own righteousness, so condescending to all others. They were supposed to lead the people uh, out of love because of love, uh, and yet all they did was burden them with laws and penalties. Now, who wants to be around people like that, right? That is no fun at all to be around people like that. So we need to take a lesson from Jesus. People wanted to be around Jesus because of how he made them feel. So Jesus' model for how we uh, approach unbelievers is not, it's not believe first, then behave, and then belong, right? Jesus would have made no converts if that was the model. It's not believe and then, uh, then behave and then belong. Jesus' model for reaching the lost is belong, believe, behave. Belong, believe, behave. Okay? Let's break that down. Belong. Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. 
He made them feel special. He made them feel loved. He called sinners to eat with them, and he allowed them to feel like they were loved and part of the group. So make people feel like they belong. Then, then Jesus taught them. Then Jesus spread the gospel to them. Then they would believe. And after they believed, then they would behave, right? Last, behave. Belief in Jesus uh, and, and belief in the gospel causes life change. So this is the model. Belong, believe, behave. Love the sinners. Love the outcasts. Uh, that is what we're supposed to do. So uh, the model for making disciples, again, belong, believe, behave. That's why Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, because that is how you make disciples. So uh, we are not anyone's judge, right? And we are not better than anyone else. So why would we act like Pharisees? Uh, what, we, what sinners... Uh, there are out there in the world. What outcasts there are out there in the world. And, and you know some of them, right? We all do. These are our neighbors. Uh, these are our co-workers. Uh, there are people in our circle of influence who are sinners, who are outcasts, uh, and they, they need to hear the gospel. So invite them in. Uh, eat with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, share the gospel. Love them. Uh, make them feel like they belong. Don't worry right now that they don't believe and that they don't behave. That stuff comes later. First, they need to belong. That's why Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. So love them like Jesus did. And just watch how Jesus will change their lives and how he will change our lives as well by stepping out in faith like that, loving the outcasts like Jesus did. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this model that you show throughout your ministry that it's belong, believe, behave, Lord, how you went to sinners, uh, you, you, you lived among them, you ate with them, and Lord, that, that you uh, showed us how we're supposed to love them as well. Uh, Lord, I pray that we will have the faith of the paralytics, friends, that's what it takes to go out into the world and to love sinners and outcasts, people who are not like ourselves, people who are unchurched, who don't uh, watch the same movies that we do and engage in the same hobbies that we do. Uh, Lord, uh, they're different from us because they don't know you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith and give us the strength to go out into the highways and byways and to call the sinners and the outcasts, uh, Lord, uh, to relationship so that we might gain the authority uh, and the credibility to speak truth into their lives, Lord, that they might one day also believe and behave, Lord. Give us the strength. Give us the power to do this from this little church of uh, less than 100 people, Lord. How can we impact the world by following this model? I pray that you'll speak to us, Lord. Have each one of us own uh, this particular uh, way of, of making disciples, Lord, and that we would go out and do it. We ask in Jesus' precious name.